You've probably had the experience of uh, following someone too closely in an automobile, and they make a rapid right turn, and uh, you miss the turn off and uh, lose them. Uh, the first time I read through this, uh, this passage that we want to talk about this morning, I thought that's precisely what the Apostle Paul had done. He made an unsignaled right turn, and uh, I completely got lost. Uh, when you read through the passage, and I'm sure you picked this up when Raleigh read through it uh, a few moments ago, it would appear that the section from 614 through 71 is mismatched, it's misplaced, it doesn't belong in that context, because Paul is making a very personal appeal, in the middle of which he says, don't be mismatched, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And it raises in our mind the relationship of that particular section with what precedes uh, the, the paragraph and what comes after. Now, there are a number of different attempts to try to, uh, uh, try to explain what seems to be a misplacing of a text. One is... Uh, simply to say that Paul wrote this on another occasion, and uh, it was inserted here by, by accident. Uh, these manuscripts that uh, the early church had to work with were loose-leaf manuscripts. They were individual pieces of papyrus, and normally were not sewn into a book, a, codices, a codex, they called them, uh, until much later. And so it would be very easy for a page to be inserted in the wrong, uh, wrong place in the manuscript, but that's very unlikely. Because the early church was very careful about that sort of thing, very careful in their, uh, uh, in their treatment of the text and their transmission of it. And uh, all of the uh, traditions we have, all of the texts of Paul's writings, which go way, way back, that sort of thing doesn't occur. So it would seem that it actually belongs here in this section. Well, then others would say, well, Paul came to the end of his argument and he simply changed his topic. The sort of thing that we do when we're reading... Uh, Reading a, or we're writing a letter and we think of something we want to say and we're afraid we'll forget, so we jot it down and then we go back to the topic we were talking about earlier. But again, that seems unlikely because the Apostle Paul was, is so logical in his presentation. It doesn't seem reasonable to me that he would, uh, he would do that sort of thing. Now, I think there's a connection between this paragraph and what precedes and what comes after it. And I've always felt that if we approach a text in that way and struggle... With the meaning of the text, very often our understanding of it becomes uh, much more than surface. And it struck me as, as I worked through this passage how significant this passage really becomes. How, how profound, how helpful when we understand the relationship of the section from 6, uh, 14 on to the, uh, into chapter 7, verse 1. Now let's look at it. Uh, together, let me uh, try to summarize the argument of the passage, and then we'll talk about the relationship of the two, uh, uh, what what appear to be dis, uh, disjunctive uh, units. Paul says, "We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you're withholding yours from us as a fair exchange." In other words, he, he says, "Play fair now." I speak as. Uh, I speak as to children, not my children. My text has my inserted here, but it's not there in Paul's writing. I speak as to children. Open wide your hearts also. Now, Paul has come to the end of his argument in 2 Corinthians. He's, he's wrapping things up. This is something of a summary statement. And he says, throughout, uh, I have been wide open with you folks over there in Corinth. I've talked about my dreams and my yearnings and my longings and my fears and my weaknesses, and I've over and over again told you how much I love you. Now, he says, play fair, 
play fair, love me in return, open wide your hearts to me as well. Uh, children have an innate sense of fair play. I, I can remember when Randy and Brian uh, uh, were small and they'd be out in the backyard scuffling over some toy, and I'd go out in the backyard, or Carolyn would, and we would say, uh, what's going on? And, and Brian would say, Randy's had the truck all afternoon to play with. It's my turn. And we'd say, now play fair. Play fair, Randy. It's, it's Brian's turn to play with the truck. Because children seem to understand that sort of appeal. And I think that's what Paul is doing. He says, I appeal to you just as I would appeal to a child. Now play fair. You, you respond. I've, I've given you my love. I've been wide open with you. I haven't tried to hold anything back. Now you, you respond in kind. That's his appeal. So the question is, how does what follows follow? What does being mismatched or misyoked or unequally yoked with unbelievers have to do with with this sort of appeal. Well, let's, uh, let's read it and see if we can't piece it together. Do not be yoked together, or unequally yoked is really the word. Do not be yoked unequally with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? The word wickedness here is really the word for lawless. What does righteousness and lawlessness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Paul is is, uh, appealing here to something that would be familiar to them. It's not as familiar to us because we don't know the Old Testament well, but uh, Paul's readers did. They understood that this allusion to being unequally yoked is rooted back into the Old Testament. And so since most of us don't know the Old Testament very well, we should go back and look at that uh, section. It's found in Deuteronomy 22. Uh, I love the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, it's one of the books I want to preach on this coming year because it is so practical even though uh, it was written a long time ago. It is the second giving of the law, a summation and updating of the law for Israel just as they were ready to go into the land of Canaan. And basically it's a book that teaches uh, God's people how to live in a a pagan environment, in a non-Christian, an unbelieving environment. And uh, this is what... uh, uh, I call miscellaneous laws about dinky things. Uh, life is full of dinky things, a lot of trivia. And uh, God has some instruction about the small things in life. He talks about things like uh, bird, bird eggs. Uh, you're not to, not to steal eggs from a mother bird. And it's right in this section in chapter 22. And uh, he says, if you don't uh, rob birds' eggs, rob uh, birds' nests, you will live long in the land. That's interesting. Uh, There's only one other law that has a similar promise, and that's the law of obedience to parents. If you obey your parents, you'll live long in the land. And you start thinking about that in a moment, for a moment, and you realize that there's something far more significant here than uh, humane treatment to birds. That's not what, what the writer is concerned about. There's something underlying this law. The the law itself symbolizes something more significant. And he's talking about respect for motherhood. 
I believe. Uh, protecting and, and loving and caring for mothers. That's important. See? It's important to your longevity in the land, uh, Moses says. Uh, elsewhere, Moses says, uh, you're not to muzzle an ox when he threshes the grain. Now, that's a humane consideration. It makes a lot of sense. In those days, they, they uh, yoked an ox to a sledge, which they dragged through the grain. That's the way they threshed it out. And uh, they were not to put a muzzle on the ox because the ox had the right to profit from his labors. He could dip down into the, the grain from time to time and get a bite to eat. And again, that seems like something that's very uh, humane and thoughtful uh, for animal life. But Paul picks that up and he says, now look, you ought to pay your teachers well over there in Corinth. Because Jesus said the laborer is worthy of his hire and you shall not muzzle the ox when he's threshing out the grain. And then Paul adds uh, his little add-on that we often miss. He says, God wasn't thinking about oxen, was he? See, Paul got the picture. That God wasn't concerned about animals primarily. He was concerned about people. And these laws that have to do with dinky things are very profound in their significance because they have to do with the way you treat people. See? And that's what you have in this passage. He, he says in 22.1, If you see your brother's ox or sheep strained, don't ignore it, but be sure to take it back to him. God does not operate on the basis that finders are keepers and losers are weepers. If you find somebody's wallet on the street, you know, don't think of that as a godsend. You know, you need to, need to pay the, pay the uh, rent this, this week. And so, oh, my goodness, there it is. And, and so you take, no, no, you, you take the money back to him. And if you don't know whose wallet it is, then you advertise for it, uh, for the, the loser. So you, 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 you care for people this way. You care about their things. And, and you look uh, in terms of, uh, you look at their needs. Uh, a little farther on in verse uh, 6, he says, If you see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen on the way, don't ignore it. Help him get on his feet. If his uh, ox breaks down on the, on the way to town or his donkey has a flat tire, you, you stop and you help him fix it. See, because God is concerned about people and meeting their needs and so forth. These uh, these laws go on. Uh, there's an interesting one in verse 5 about mixing up clothing. A woman must not wear man's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. And I say, my, that is a strong attitude for God to have toward people who uh, mix up their clothing. What, is, what does he mean? Now, does he mean that women today shouldn't wear slacks because that's, man's, uh, that's a man's piece of apparel? No, not at all. I'm just trying to think about it a minute. Men wore dresses back then. He's not talking about that. <laughs> There's something far more significant. He's saying, look, men ought to be men and women ought to be women. And the two are very much different. Don't mix them up. If you wonder what you are, look in the mirror. If you're a man, that's what you are. And if you're a woman, that's what you are. You don't need to be confused about these things, he's saying. See, the clothing... It has something to say about the essence of a person. That's the point. And you don't confuse the sexes. And then he goes on to talk about other mixed things. In verse 9, Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of your vineyard will be defiled. You don't uh, plant a row of potatoes 
in between your vines because you'll ruin both crops. That's the point. The soil will be leached out, the nutrients taken out of the soil, and neither crop will be good. So you don't do that sort of thing. And uh, then he says in verse 10, don't plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. There we are to the passage that Paul is thinking about. You don't yoke the two together because they have unequal gates. And the yoke will chafe both of them. You'll ruin your animals. That's the point. And then he says, don't wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. And that makes a lot of sense because you wash the garment and the wool shrinks and you, the garment's ruined. In each case, Paul says, you, or not Paul, Moses says, you don't, you don't mix the two elements because it's ruinous. It hurts you. It hurts things, see. You'll ruin your crops. You'll ruin your animals. You'll ruin your clothing. So you don't mix the two up. Now, it's that idea that Paul is, uh, has in the back of his mind when he, he talks about yoking together a believer and an unbeliever because he says the thing is ruinous. That's the point. Now, let's go back to 2 Corinthians again and, and uh, take a look at, at the way Paul develops this idea. Uh, someone has said that there are two kinds of people in the world, those that divide the world into two kinds of people and those that don't. Uh, <laughs> Paul is one of those that divided the world into two kinds of people. And uh, he says there are believers and there are unbelievers. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. And that's Paul's, uh, uh, that, that's his thinking all the way through all of his writings. The other differences don't make any difference. Differences of, uh, uh, you know, economics and sex and, and status in life, the class, those distinctions don't make any difference. The only real difference in the world is the difference between Christians and non-Christians. And that's a fundamental difference. Now, Paul is not saying, nor does he anywhere say, that, that, that Christians are all good and, and right and proper, and non-Christians are all wicked. I mean, he's too much of a realist for that, to, to make that kind of statement. Uh, and all of us know that that's not true to experience. We, uh, we know a lot of non-Christians that uh, are much better in terms of their conduct than some of our Christian friends. I have a friend who refers to some of his Christian friends as the kind of Christians that make him want to be a Buddhist. And uh, we all know people like that. Uh, God is in the business of changing lives, and sometimes he starts on a life when it's badly damaged. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that God is in the business of making bad people good and good people better. And, and some of us start our Christian life uh, out with a, with a lot of blemishes and a lot of problems and, and complex psychological needs, and it, and it takes us a while to grow. And so we may not be as nice and easy to live with as some non-Christian who had a stable home environment and uh, who is secure and was easy to live with even when they were non-Christians. You see, Paul's not saying that Christians are good and non-Christians are bad. That's not the point. What he's talking about is that at the very center of our life, there is a radical difference between Christians and non-Christians. The best illustration of that is the story of Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament. If you know anything about that story, you know that Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a rascal, if there ever was one. He was a schemer and a conniver and a liar, and he, he, you know, he would have conned his best friend. He did. He conned his brother out of the birthright. And yet, in the Old Testament, we're told that God loved Esau. 
and he re- or pardon me, God loved Jacob, and he rejected Esau. Why? Well, the reason uh, Jacob schemed is because he wanted the birthright, and you know what the birthright represented. It was for him the right to be in the line that would bring the seed of the woman who would bring salvation to the world. And Jacob wanted that at all costs. He was willing to do anything to get it. His method was wrong. But you can't fault his heart. Because he wanted the things of the kingdom of God. He loved God with all of his heart. And uh, he was kind of, a, as a boy growing up, he was pampered and sissified by his mother. And she just gave him everything he wanted. And he grew up just a spoiled little brat. And he had a hard time living that down and getting control of himself. But down inside, he wanted God with all of his heart. And God said, I love that man. I love that man. Now, see, that's the difference. Way down deep inside, often where we can't even see it, there is a radical difference that begins to show up after a while in the way we live our lives. Now, look at... uh, there are a series of antitheses here that spell out uh, the, the differentness, the distinction between Christians and non-Christians. For what do righteousness and lawlessness have in common? One of, the, one of the differences is that Christians have a different standard than non-Christians. They walk to a different drumbeat. Their standard is Christ himself, his character, and, and his teachings. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you'll find rest for your souls. Now, that's, that's what it takes to be a Christian, to submit yourself to Jesus as Lord and begin to, to subject yourself to his teachings. This idea of being yoked was a common metaphor in, in the ancient world for submitting to a teacher. So there is a different standard We may not always do it, but in our hearts we want to please the Lord. We want to live life as he tells us it ought to be lived, and that makes a difference. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, one of the the men in our Wednesday morning class stood up and he said, I need to tell you men about a decision that I've made. He said, I got into big trouble here a few weeks back. Big trouble, he said. And uh, I lied to get out of it. And he, he told us what his lie was, and it was a big whopper it was a fib and he said i've been i've been thinking about that ever since and he said i uh, i started thinking about the fact that that christ did not bypass the pain for our sake the pain of the cross and he said i realize now why i lied i was trying to bypass the pain of some bad decisions that i'd made And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I had to go back and face the music. And he said, I'm going to go back this week and tell the person that I lied to that I lied. You ever done that? Boy, is that ever humiliating. And uh, he did it. He did it. Well, that's what I mean by living under a different standard. This particular man, he he told a lie. But, But he couldn't live with it. See, that's the point. There is a seeking after righteousness and a right standard in, in someone who has submitted to Christ's yoke, in contrast to lawlessness. Now, uh, there's another distinction made here. He, he says, what uh, fellowship can light have with darkness? Those of you that know Christ as Lord seek after light. That is truth. The uh, light is used as a symbol throughout Scripture for truth. 
You're willing to expose yourself to the truth. You're a seeker after truth. And our Lord is the way and, and the truth and the life. So you don't shrink from Him. Uh, you, you'll permit the truth to expose evil in your life. You don't try to hide it. You don't try to do things in the darkness that, uh, that no one can see. You live in the light openly and transparently. I, when I used to work with uh, college students, I would often find people who told me that they were seekers after truth and they were into some kind of Eastern religion or something of that nature. And we'd start talking and I'd talk to them about Christ and they'd say, oh, I don't have any use for that. I've investigated and I don't want Christ in my life. Well, uh, hopefully I said it kindly and lovingly, but I did say it. Well, you know, I, I, you can't really say you're a seeker after truth if you reject Christ because he is the truth. He's ultimate reality. And I think all of us have the tendency to kind of look for a dark place to hide when the light comes on. Well, Paul says, see, that's, that's one difference. That those that, that call themselves Christians will seek to live in the light, to permit the truth to expose their, their deeds. Uh, the third distinction, he says, is uh, between Christ and Belial. What harmony is there between Christ? As you know, that's the word for Messiah, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, and Belial. Some of your translations have Belial. That's because the Greeks had the same problem with R and L that the Chinese do. And uh, they often interchange the two, uh, the two letters. So either one will do. But it's a word that was in common use in the Old Testament for uh, worthless people. And it came to be used in the New Testament era for, uh, uh, for Satan. This is what, what contrast, what, what harmony is there between Christ and Satan? What Paul is saying is that there really are only two sources for activity in the world, God and Satan. There's no neutrality. We're either on God's side or we're on Satan's side. Can't, can't be somewhere in between. We can't even be self-serving. Because when we are, we are, as Paul puts it, taken captive by Satan to do his will. A friend of mine told me a story here a few weeks back about some Duke University students that were going to a fraternity party. And they dressed up in the costume of their mascot. Uh, you know, the, the, the Duke University is the, is the Blue Devils. And uh, so they had these blue devil costumes on. And uh, they went by a Baptist church, and there was a prayer meeting going on. They thought they'd have some fun. So they, uh, they burst through the back doors, and uh, these people uh, began jumping out of windows, running out of the back door, and it just panicked rain for about five minutes. And uh, uh, there was this poor, unfortunate lady who tried to get out of one of the pews, and she got stuck on the way out. And she became so panicked that she fainted and fell over on the pew. And the students, of course, were really concerned uh, about what they had done. So they got her a glass of water and they began to fan her face. And they finally got her to sit up. And when she saw them again, her eyes got about this big around. And she said, she said, look, she said, I want to tell you. She says, I've been a member of this church for 20 years. But secretly, I've been on your side all along. <laughs> And whether there's any truth in that or not, it uh, establishes a principle that you know you really cannot uh, serve two masters. We we either serve God or we serve the devil. And people say, "Well, I'm not a devil worshipper. I'm not a Satan worshipper. I don't go out and and mutilate animals and offer up sacrifices to demons." But uh, Satan also appears as an angel of light, 
And he is the God of this world. And he does manipulate us unless we're subject to God. And, and Paul puts it very clearly. He says we are taken captive to do his will, to do Satan's will if we're not subject to God. So there are, there are two sources of activity in the world. And you see, here's this radical difference again. If you are a believer, you serve God. If you are not, then you serve Satan. That's very frightening. I'm just telling you what Paul says. It's not something I'm imposing on the, on the text. And then he says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Uh, in the Old Testament era, the, the temple represented the, the presence of God within his people. And in the uh, inner sanctuary, the holiest place of all in, in the temple, there was a little box about so big, about the size of a footlocker with a couple of angels on the top. And inside the box was the word of God, all the scripture they had at that time, the law. No image, no idol, just, just the Word of God, which represented the invisible God uh, as He is seen and known through the Word of God. And this is what, this is what Israel worshipped, God in their midst. They, they knew, they knew that God didn't live in that temple. They knew that He was bigger than all outdoors. But uh, they, they saw in symbol the dwelling place of God in their midst through that temple. All the other temples, the pagan temples, had a little idol in the middle. That's what they worshipped. And Paul says, you need to realize it's still going on today. You're the temple of God. The temple was still standing in Jerusalem, but that temple no longer represented the dwelling place of God. God dwells in you, you folks, the church over in Corinth. This is the temple of God today. Us, we Christians, as we gather corporately, we are the temple of God. God dwells here. And uh, in other churches throughout the city of Boise and throughout the world where, where our Lord is worshipped. And individually, in, your, in our own bodies, we contain God himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that you, individually, singular, you, second person singular, you are the temple of God. And he, he dwells within you, you see. Uh, in fact, in order to underscore this idea, he quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and will walk among them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. God dwells in you, he says, but what, what, what dwells within a non-Christian? Well, it's an idol. It's an idol. Again, I'm, I'm not saying this. Paul is saying this. What happens to you or to your non-Christian friend when your mind shifts into neutral? Where do you go? And what's your predominant thought? As, as Carolyn says, what is it that lights up your eyes? You know, I've, had, I've had conversations with uh, non-Christians, and we've talked about the Lord, and they have no interest. And then we've talked about uh, skiing or fishing or hunting, and boy, their eyes light up, and they get enthusiastic. And I, and I have to think, well, you know, see, that's, that's the little idol that's inside. That's what they worship. That's what gives meaning and worth to their life, see? It's not an absolute thing. And, and all of us, even as Christians, have trouble centering on the Lord and worshiping Him. But when, when all else fails, you know, what is it that's at the bottom of, of life? What is it that gives meaning to life? Well, it's the Lord Himself who resides within us. And with a, with a non-Christian, it's something else. Pursuit of money or power or prestige or to be known or, or to, be, uh, uh, to be recognized. It, it, it's something else. It's not God. There's this fundamental difference, he says, between Christians and, and non-Christians. Therefore, he says in verse 17, and here he quotes the Old Testament, Isaiah 52. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, 
and touch no unclean thing. And I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. Actually, he calls texts from all over the Old Testament, a sort of constellation of Old Testament texts to make this point. starts with a quotation from Isaiah 52. Uh, Isaiah was an 8th century B.C. prophet. But he prophesied about things that would happen in the 6th century B.C. in 522 when the Babylonian captivity occurred. And he, he says to Judah, he says, the time is coming when, when the Babylonians will come and they'll take you off into, into captivity. But you'll come back, he says. You'll return. And when you come back, he says, leave all that unclean stuff in Babylon. The, the uh, them in verse 17 is Babylon. Therefore, come out from among them, from Babylon. And be separate. Don't bring all those awful things with you when you come back. Don't bring the idols. Don't bring the immorality. Don't bring the infidelity. Don't bring all that stuff. Leave in Babylon when you come back. And I'll receive you, he says. I'll embrace you. I'll be your father. I'll take care of you. See? It's sometimes hard to leave all these things because they, they give so much meaning and worth to our life. We think that's, that's what gives substance to our life. God says, you know, if, if you leave them, I'll be your father. Um, Carolyn cooked up some short ribs the other day, and uh, uh, we th- threw the bones. We had some great dog bones. We threw them to our dog, and the dog thought that was the greatest thing that had happened this year. And uh, she was out in the backyard gnawing on the bones all day. Stayed out there all day. It's cold weather, but she didn't care because she had her bones. Uh, at the end of the day, it started getting really cold, and she went back in the house. But she had all these uh, dirty old bones. And she comes to the back door with his bone in her mouth, and she scratches. And Carolyn comes to the door, and she says, uh, No, the bones stay outside. You can come in. The bones stay outside. If you want the bone, you stay outside. You come in here, the bones go out there. See? Now, that, that's what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 52. can't bring all those dirty old things in here. That's part of the old life. you got to leave it out there. See, You come in the house, you leave the bones outside. You want the bone, you got to stay out there. But you can't come in here with a bone, see? And that's, that's what Isaiah is saying, and that's what Paul is saying. You don't mix it up with things out there and, and then try to bring it into the house. It isn't kosher. It isn't done. It isn't right. It isn't proper. And in, in chapter 7, he says, Since we have, we are having, we constantly have, we keep on having these promises, dear friend. Dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and, and spirit, perfecting holiness. Uh, the suggestion that this thing requires persistent effort is not like flipping a switch. It takes time. Holiness takes time. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for, uh, for God. And I still have to raise the question, Paul, what, what does this have to do with what goes before Because if you notice, he continues on with his argument, the same argument that he began in verse 11. Make room for us in our hearts. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. He he is saying, I'm sure that you are, in the end, going to respond to our love. What was it that happened? How do we put all of this together? How does the section from, from 614 through 7-1 fit? 
Well, uh, some would say that he is talking about uh, staying away from non-Christians. Just don't have anything to do with non-Christians. They're, they're contaminated. And if we spend time with them, then we will bring into God's house all sorts of loathsome things. And so you don't want to have anything to do with non-Christians. There was an idea that... Uh, that developed within the church during the medieval period that prompted the monastic movement. You just, you just get away from the world. That's the only way to cope with that wicked world out there. But that's so far from our Lord's response to the world. He loved irreligious people. He was the friend of sinners, is the way the Gospels put it. And that word for sinners is the word that's used in the Gospel for people who never went to the synagogue. It wasn't that they were more sinful than some of the other Jewish people. It was a word that was specifically applied to the irreligious, the people that sacked in on the Sabbath and never darkened the door of a synagogue. And that's where Jesus spent his time. Because as he put it, those are the people that need the physician. The sort of people that David was thinking about a moment ago. Who live in lonely love. That's where we ought to be spending our time. Uh, Though it may mar our reputation as it did our Lord's reputation. Uh, We need to remember that we are to be separate from sinners morally, as he was. He wasn't contaminated by their, by their sin. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't buy up their lifestyle, but he was with them, and that's where we need to be. But you know, it just, it's obvious to me that Paul is not saying, let's have nothing to do with non-Christians. That's contrary to everything we know in the Word. Well, perhaps he's saying that we shouldn't marry non-Christians. It's often the way this passage is applied. And, and we should not. There are other passages of Scripture that clearly teach that, uh, that believers and non-believers have mutually exclusive, incompatible lifestyles. And they're moving in opposite directions. And therefore, it, it's a burden to both to be linked together. And you can apply this passage in principle to that particular idea. Uh, there, as I look around, I, I spot a lot of faces, men and women that I know that were married to non-Christians at some point in their life. And, and uh, if they could stand up here and talk to those of you who are considering marrying a non-Christian, they would say, don't do it. Don't do it. It isn't worth it. I so often have uh, talked to young women who, who say to me, but, but you don't understand. I, you know, I, there's this handsome hunk of humanity who, over here who loves me. And uh, this guy, uh, when it comes to knowing how to treat a lady, and he hits the long ball. He does so much better than, than my Christian friends who can't keep their hands off of me. And, and uh, you know, who, who, he has much higher moral standards than they do. Well, why can't I marry him? Well... For the very reasons that Paul spells out in this passage and elsewhere, that the two lifestyles are diametrically opposed. And what is at the very center of his life or her life, if she's a, a non-Christian mate or potential mate, uh, is something different than what is in the center of your life. So at the very heart of things, you cannot share the things that have the deepest meaning to you. So you can apply this uh, passage in principle, and certainly passages like 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that uh, that a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian is going to be hurtful, terribly, desperately hurtful to both people in, in the relationship. But again, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here at all. Because it's not in the context. 
He isn't talking about marriage. He hasn't even mentioned marriage. What does he have in mind? Well, I think this is what he's saying. And let me say uh, this first, by way of introduction. Most of us have our concept of worldliness too neatly categorized. There are certain activities that we have decided are worldly. Smoking, uh, drinking, dancing, playing cards, going to movies, those sorts of things. And we think if we're not doing those things, we're not worldly. Uh, You may even take it a step further and say, well, worldliness is marrying a non-Christian. And I haven't done that. I I married a Christian. I never even dated non-Christians. And uh, uh, and still be worldly. Because what Paul is talking about here is buying into an attitude in the world. An attitude that, that characterized the Greek world of Paul's day. The Greeks in the first century were tough. Let me tell you, they were tough. Uh, we think that Idaho people are tough, but the Greeks were tougher. Believe me, they were. And their idea of manhood is someone who is always in control. Always. Who never uh, breaks down. Who never looks weak. Who never appears inadequate. Who never shows his feelings. He's always in control. He's cool. Uh, aloof and distant. That was, that, uh, was the archetypical Greek man in Paul's day. All you have to do is read the, the classical Greek writers from the 6th century B.C. on and you'll see that. You're always in control. Now you see what had happened? Uh, Paul wrote to these people and he shared his heart with them. He broke down and uh, shared his weakness. He talked about his longings, his hurts, his aspirations, his dreams. He, he acted in a very undignified way for a first century uh, uh, Greek or Roman. And these people responded to him, his Christian friends responded to him as the average Greek in the world would respond. They were cool and distant and aloof and they were unwilling to respond to his love. And they were saying, we wouldn't act like that. How embarrassing. We're not going to, you know, how can anybody talk about their weakness? How can anybody be that open and transparent? We are Greeks. We don't act that way. And Paul says, don't be yoked, unequally yoked with the world. He's talking about an attitudinal yoking. Worldliness is an attitude rather than actions. It may show up in actions, but basically it's an attitude. Now let me tell you how I think this applies uh, today. You ever had the experience of getting into a fight with your wife? And uh, after uh, having a, a, a good tiff... Uh, she, because she realizes she's wrong, uh, or because she's the more mature and uh, she wants to set things right, comes to you and she says, I am sorry. I was wrong. And we say, tough darts. I am going to let you squirm a little bit. And so we become cold and distant. And we won't talk. We give her the silent treatment. You know what that is? That's worldliness. That's what Paul is talking about here. 
It's maintaining our dignity, refusing to break down and respond to someone else's lie. Or some of you people have been desperately hurt by someone in your life, perhaps your parents or an ex-husband or an ex-wife. And uh, the hurt goes on and on and on. And that person uh, wants to be reconciled. They admit that they're wrong. And we're unwilling to respond to their love because we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable again. We say, you stepped all over me before. I'm not going to do that again. I'll never let you treat me that way again. C.S. Lewis has a great quote in The Four Loves that's appropriate as an illustration of this principle. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will continually be wrong and and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Love is a very costly thing. And we know it's costly. And we've been hurt so many times when we have uh, offered ourselves to someone else that our tendency is to shrink back. But as Lewis puts it, what happens when we do that, when we start protecting ourselves, is that our hearts become unbreakable, impenetrable, more and more cold. And you see, that's the way people in the world deal with their differences. Someone, you wrong me, I will never forget. I don't care what you do or how much love you show me from this point on. Paul says, don't be linked up in your mind with people like that. That, that, that's, That's not godly. That's not the way God dealt with us. See, our Lord was willing to go to the cross for us and to say to those who crucified him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, my question to you and, and to me is, are we willing to live on that basis? Some of you are sitting here, probably came in here angry at someone who wronged you today, and you've been cold and hostile toward them because they deserve it. They, they, if you just knew what they said to me, you'd know how right I am. You see, that's worldliness. And we can uh, put away all the other things that we think are worldly, and if we embrace that attitude, then we're worldly. We've capitulated to the thinking of, of the world. Let's pray. John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He doesn't say that that somehow we have to work our way back into his good graces. It doesn't say that that there are only certain people that he can forgive or only certain actions that can be forgiven. He doesn't say that some things are so heinous, so, so evil and wicked that they can never be forgiven. He says, whosoever believes in him. And that's the same attitude we ought to have to people around us who have wronged us doesn't make any difference what they've done. We need to respond to them. 
Lord, we uh, thank you for this good word. It is so convicting. Who of us can say that we've not uh, given people the cold shoulder, the cold treatment because of the way they've treated us, even when they have confessed their wrong? Forgive us, Lord, for the way we treat our our wives, our children, our parents, our in-laws, those that work with us, our neighbors. Teach us by your own grace and forgiving spirit to be a forgiving people. To open our hearts wide to those that have opened themselves up to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.